Hello, listeners. My name is Hisham Abdullah, and welcome to another episode of the NFC Focal Point podcast. Today, we're delighted to be joined by Chris Knight. Chris is currently the Group Chief for Risk Officer and was also previously the CEO of Legal and General Retail Retirement for three years. Chris led the expansion of the firm's annuity propositions, created one of the leading providers of lifetime mortgages, and established their financial advice and health and care business. He has also served as LNG's customer champion, was CEO of a life insurance joint venture in Taiwan, and he also holds experience in actuarial consulting in Africa. He was an actuary for 30 years and is a fellow of the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Chris holds a first-class Bachelor of Arts in Economics, and he graduated from King's College, Cambridge. So Chris, how are you doing today? Very good, thanks, Hisham. Very excited to be on the podcast with you. That's great to hear. It's a pleasure to have you on board. So to start off, Chris, could you please begin by telling the audience a little bit about what you do at your current role at Legal and General? Yeah, well, look, Hisham, just a few words on Legal and General. We're one of the companies listed in the FTSE 100 index here in the UK. We are a global fund manager, so we have about £1.4 trillion worth of people's money. A lot of that money ultimately is pension money, people saving for their retirement, and we have 12 million individual customers as well, about half of them for whom we provide their pensions and then the other half for whom we provide life insurance products. We're also one of the biggest house builders here in the UK. We're a big developer and builder of offices, business parks, and we like to think of ourselves as also some creating jobs and, and investing in throughout the country. So we do a phenomenal variety of things, lots of different business and different business models, and as the chief risk officer. I'm kind of the internal advisor to the board and to the senior management on risk issues. So when we're doing a new investment or opening up a new business, what are the risks we're taking? Are we managing them well? Do we understand them well? Are we doing anything really stupid that we shouldn't be doing? Ultimately, my mission is to help uh, the team here make really good business decisions with their eyes wide open. So basically, you know, people in LNG have been making good decisions since 1836 when the company started. And it's my mission to make sure we, we keep making good decisions for as long as I'm, uh, I'm working as the chief risk Thank you very much. I think that was a very insightful summary. So over your career, which spans over three decades, incredibly impressive. Some of your biggest experiences have revolved around three rather distinct, but very niche industries, I noticed. Your mm. current ch group chief risk officer position is, of course, in the risk and financial services sector, as you mentioned. But outside yep. of that, you are also a non-executive director of a housing care and community services company and a software development company too, both in Cambridgeshire. To delve a little bit deeper into that, I want to split the next three questions into small parts. So what yep. made you take on those two roles alongside your role at Legal General? Um couple of things, first of all, I think when you work for a big company like Legal General, which I love, but when you work for a few years and one, we tend to get sort of inputs from the same places, you know, the same people, the same contacts and the same industry. But sometimes you need to get some new ideas and some new things with new perspectives as well. So the help and the care charity in Cambridge Housing Society, for me, it was a chance to be a non-executive on their board. It was a charitable role as a cause, give me a chance to take on a new role that I hadn't, as a, i.e. as the non-executive role rather than executive role, which I've not done, not done before. And actually for my role at the time, legal in general, I was running, as you mentioned earlier, I was running our retirement business and 
and, and my clients and my customers were in part of the same sort of customers that this charity was, was helping. So again, it's really important in any kind of work of life, any role you take on to make sure you get enough input from a wider, a wide range of different factors and, and places and some new ideas. So it gave me a huge amount of insight into the real lives of my customers. You know, I'm very aware that I'm a very privileged person. Thank you very much for that. That was a very powerful message. There definitely exists that huge difference between, you know, the theory and what we study and what we do see in the real world. And sort of drawing off of that, what drew you to the financial services sector and specifically legal in general and risk? As I said, you know, my, as it happened, my dissertation in my third year was on the sort of value of a human life or how much money do governments and people put on lives, that other people's lives or even their own, their own lives. You could sort of say, if you're looking at like a road church and you say, well, if I spend a hundred thousand pounds, I should re reduce the probability of a fatality by over the next 10 years by 10%. Okay. Well, you're applying sort of somehow a 1 million value on a life. If it was going to be 200,000, you'd say no. So you're saying, well, I'm not spending. So no one likes to think about the fact that, you know, there's a limit to how much you can spend. There is a day factor. Of it. So that's how I got sort of interested in, in the world of sort of insurance and, actu and actuarial work. To start. That's how I got into it. Again, back to the real world. Pensions, you know, is a it's a social contract and construct as much as it is a financial transaction. So people are saving money so that they can retire well and look after themselves and not fall upon the state and, and welfare. So that's where we all have an interest in people saving for pension. On the other side, no pension system is going to be affordable if the economy is not doing well. And therefore, the assets that you're collecting, you must invest wisely to ultimately drive the economy. You know, maybe it's the world economy, but you know, so it's also the UK economy for people that are saving in the UK. So you can think of pensions as being, yes, it's very technical, it's all finance, high finance stuff, but actually it's also deeply embedded in super important things around economic, on both, as I say, um, both sides of the balance sheet. So for me, that's why. Uh, you know, and it's that's the mentality we have here at the League in general. It's a little bit special, but that is always how we've thought about uh, our world. The term we use is inclusive capitalism, and we really have tried over the last 10 years to reach out to places, particularly in the UK, to really invest in towns and cities and jobs, places where it's not fashionable, it's not being fashionable to do so. And that, for me, I'm, I'm very proud of what we do in that, in that area. So if you know, you go to Cards, Cardiff, Manchester, Salford, Newcastle, Sunderland, Leeds, you'll, you'll see huge parts of those cities or significant parts of those cities where you know, we have, you know, invested and really made a massive impact on people's lives. For me, LNG has, has been special, you know, clearly I'm biased, but I really, that's how I believe, believe it. And for me on the risk side of things, you know, again, I'm very passionate about the mission for the in general, as I said, it's been going since 1836. I really want us to succeed in improving the lives of our customers and making a positive impact on, on, on the world, be it through, you know, leveling up your sort of investment, be it through investing in clean energy and other stuff that very aligned to, to climate change. Those things are for me, super, super important. That's what it's all about. Thank you. I think that was a very unique take, especially the last bit about you know, being able to say that's what your firm does. That was very inspiring. I think we all want to be in that some sort of position like that someday. And our listeners yeah, definitely agree. We would do something if it improves people's life. If, if our customers get a good deal out of it, if it has a positive, not just a neutral, but a positive impact on society and we make money, 
and, and we have to, and for us, it's got to tick all three boxes because if it just ticks two, two boxes, it won't be sustainable and we won't be able to do it at scale. We won't be able to do it at scale, even if we wanted to do it at scale. You then decided to stay at Legal in General for the next 15 years, which is certainly a direct testament to your courage, loyalty, and dedication. Could you then also educate us more in your time as the CEO of LNG's Retail Retirement Park? Maybe yeah. perhaps what you did, any challenges you might face? Yeah, well, look, you know, retirement is something that I'm much closer to than you are. So maybe I have more empathy, more interest in learning what retirement's all about than, than you might. In the old days, or let's say our parents' model of re retirement was, or, you know, what, what was a good life? You know, sort of, you worked hard, you had a mortgage, you got your house eventually by the time you were sort of getting towards retirement and your nice, friendly company that you've worked for for decades had put money aside on your behalf and it got you a pension and, and that was going to be a, maybe two thirds of your salary and that's, and it was inflation with, came with inflation. So, you know, you kind of left school at 18, you worked till 60, 65. In the old, old days, you died at 67, so it wasn't a great deal, but as, as time went on, you know, you had a long period. So that was a very nice retirement. That model does not exist anymore. If any of your listeners are sitting there thinking that that's what life is going to be like for them, unfortunately, they're very mistaken. So life at the moment is people, some people have got a house by the time they retire. Some people are actually still paying for their house when they get unclosed to, to retirement. Many people don't have. A, a pension of really of any worth from the from the employee. Even the government pension is a lot less generous than it was, and it's starting later and later. As I took on my role as as running the retirement business, I it was sort of ten years ago, and I, I was encouraged to go onto the state the, on the government website. You can look up how much pension you're going to get when you retire. Uh, if you're living on state pension, you're not having a great life. So our average. Customer, when they get to retirement, has a saving or pension pot of somewhere around thirty to forty thousand pounds. Which again, if you think people retiring at age sixty or sixty-five are probably going to be living for twenty-five years, then having a pension pot of forty thousand pounds for the last twenty-five years is nothing. So I'm you know, very interested in the lives of, of people that come into retirement. So the, the the business is all about trying to help people make the most use of their assets so that they can have the best retirement that they can possibly have. And that's ours. Again, we have lots of financial tools about, you know, accumulation products and annuity products and lifetime mortgages, but it's all about the same thing. It's how do you take someone's wealth, if you like, at retirement and generate and turn that into an income that they can actually spend for as long as they live. Because one of the things people struggle with, they obviously don't know how long they've lived. They don't know how long they're their pensions need to need to last. Um, and for some people, they get confused and they kind of blow it all too soon and they have nothing. Other people, they're too conservative. They don't spend enough money. They have a, a poorer retirement than they, that they, sh they should have done and they leave money to their, to, their, to, to their families that don't need it. And so it's really helping people navigate through that, that process. And as a result, certainly we're helping to sell people products that, we can, that they can use, that, that there are products that we will make, make money from. But that, that was the, that's the context of the, of the role. And obviously the other part of it is leading a, you know, a team of a couple of thousand people up and down the country involved in lots of, lots of work to make that happen. But ultimately it was about, about sort of people who are retiring in a tough world. I think that nicely brings us on to our next question, which is how did your role as CEO there compare to being CEO of the life insurance joint venture in Taiwan? 
because as we know, life insurance is definitely almost a branch of risk. But for those of us who might be a bit more unfamiliar with it, could you elaborate a bit more about your role there, the nature of the company and what you sort of did there? Yeah, sure. I mean, I was really, I was working in Singapore, uh, the regional finance director for, for another company before I joined uh, Legal General. Uh, and we were looking um, to do more in Asia at the time. Uh, and we identified Taiwan as a market where we felt we could enter that market as a joint venture in the life insurance space into, into Taiwan. So Taiwan is a fabulous place, by the way. I thoroughly recommend it. It's, it's the most beautiful country. It's the size of Wales with 22 million people living in it. So it's packed, but it's beautiful, beautiful country. So I went down to Taiwan with two people's business cards and I contacted them. And from that, developed a network of people and con contacts, found a local bank who wanted to do a joint venture with us, negotiated with them a deal, did a business plan, which the bank and my, my company, the directors approved, and we set up from scratch a life insurance company and I ran it for a year. So did that role, I started with nothing essentially other than a couple of business cards and the brand of, of, of the company I was working for and came away three years later, uh, I left behind the company with a uh, couple hundred employee, employees uh, selling life insurance and savings products to, to people up and down uh, the island of Taiwan. So. That one was kind of quite entrepreneurial, risk, risk taking a different, in a different way. It was super exciting. It was, it was you know, it's a, it was a new country I hadn't really lived in before. So that was sort of starting extremely small and building up to something that was still quite modest size, but you know, it was quite, a, uh, I felt like I had, you know, a words hard. I was very excited. We did a very, entre very entrepreneurial. League in general, running a retirement business, you know, by that point, League in general was, was already 176 years old. Not starting from scratch, I already had a team of 2,000 people and three or four million customers. So it was a very different sort of, you know, taking on a very different role. role. You know, I definitely learned very different things from the two different, two different experiences. But it's nice to have that, that variety of experience to draw. Thank you very much for that. Moving on, you've been involved in various publications in 2018 across The Mirror, The Telegraph, BBC Business Live, etc. in many articles titled The Bank of Mum and Dad or some kind of variation of such. In one such yeah. article, you mentioned parents and grandparents across the UK are often digging deep into their pension pots to support their loved ones, balancing the housing needs of their children and their grandchildren with their own retirement goals. Worryingly, in the majority of cases, these individuals aren't taking advice before they lend. You also said that the financial services sector should rethink how it communicates with people and that it means getting people to think about retirement income earlier, helping them build their retirement plan and laying out all the options available to them. If we can help people to be this generous without leaving themselves short, helping their family onto the property ladder, but also ensuring that they have the best retirement they can, end quote. Could you perhaps yeah. give some more context on the message of these articles and the challenges faced by the individuals regarding the UK housing market? And then after that, could you maybe address how you think the narrative has changed? Has the housing crisis worsened? If so, what do you think the solution to that is? So look, I think to go a little bit from the start, yeah. if you like, in the UK, we've had the idea for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, it was definitely promoted a lot by the, the Thatcher government and related people in the eighties, but it was already a growing idea that, you know, one of the most important things in life is to own your own house. In some other countries, maybe Germany, it's much more rental market. 
so much about when you were in us, but it became the sine qua non of capitalism and how it worked for people. So it's said to work for people in, in the US, but buying a house was the key thing. And people used to say things that you'd say, like people, my home is my pension, for example, which is sort of kind of odd saying, because it you know, really isn't in a real sense, your, your, your pension. So, and what you've had is you get people coming to retirement or approaching retirement and their house is by some margin, the, the biggest asset. And especially if you think of perhaps my generation, my parents' generation, I mean, they thought that how, you know, the, the house price appreciation was so huge over the, over the decades that it was massively that, 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 so you had that, that was one aspect of the housing market. Then you have that other aspect, which is the, the corollary of that is that getting on that housing ladder is extremely difficult because for young youngsters these days, because it's just the, the, the price price is so high as a multiple of, of, of income. So it's really, it's really tough. So one of the things that's been is that parents and grandparents have been giving money to, to the, this children and their grandchildren to help them onto the housing ladder. And that's obviously, that's a noble thing. I'm sure you'd all want your listeners all be very keen for their mums and dads and their grandparents to get them ready to do that. So it's totally, un totally understandable. But what was happening was what has happened quite a lot is people have done that on a very ad hoc basis and they've, they've, they've taken away from their pension savings, if you like, and they've given it, then given it to their children. Now, everybody pretty much universal in, in the UK feels that what they're going to do when they're going to, they're going to, they're going to bequeath their house to their children. I mean, that's like, uh, everyone, that's everyone's model of what's going to happen. My mum is to say, she's got a house. She's going to, that's part of the inheritance. She's going to get left to her children. 73% of people, uh, in the last survey that I looked at know full well that the children have no intention whatsoever of living in the house. So when my mum leaves their house, leaves her house to me. No, is I'm not going to live. I'm really going to, I'm going to sell it. So what is the big thing with leaving the house? Because actually immediately that mum's gone, it's going to be for me, a financial asset. I think obviously I care about the house, memories, family, all sorts of things, but actually it's ultimately it's just, it's really going to be a financial asset. So it's about, it's about the money. So why, you know, it's not very rational. If someone hasn't got very much money in retirement, they want to help their children, they take the money out of their pension pot so they can't spend it they still have this house. So what we were trying to do people is to say, look, your biggest part of your assets is your house and your housing wealth. How can you use it in a way that will meet your other goals that might be helping your, helping your children or even freeing up money to have a better retirement. Your, your, there are over a million people in the UK who are aging without children. So these are people that don't have any children, yet they still want to somehow leave the house. Like, so what it's a pure financial asset for them. So why not? What you can do with a lifetime mortgage is you can borrow money on the house that you don't have to pay back until you pass away. So it's sort of, it's not your problem. You're not leaving debt to anybody else. The, the debt can never be more than the value of the, of, of the house. But it allows you to take money out of your, if you like, real the value of your housing assets and also achieve some of your goals. And you can stay in your, in your staying house. The link to the housing crisis is, is kind of an interesting one. It's as a separate one as well, because I mean, clearly it's got worse that the governments had, oppressive governments have had housing targets and not, and not, not, not met them. Our population has been increasing significantly. The quality of our housing is poor. Huge percentage of our housing has been built decades and decades ago. And, and it's not in great shape, not great shape from a climate perspective, not great shape for us. Or a quality of accommodation perspective uh, either. 
Now, one of the issues is old people, older people tend to stay in the family ha- family home. So back to my, my mum, she's in a three bedroom house. Now she doesn't need three bedrooms. She doesn't need that. So what we should be trying to encourage people to do is to downsize in the right way. But another, there's all this sort of emotion around the, the house and the family house. Part of the other part of the, it's only going to help a very in a small, in a modest way uh, to solve the whole housing crisis is to encourage people to, to, to trade down. And we talk, you know, obviously you've heard about first time buyers. We talk about people who are last time buyers because what they should be doing is lock for the last time trading down and managing that, managing that process. Right. Chris, thank you so much for your inspiring words and your time to share your amazing insights with us. And also thank you to all our listeners for joining us on this episode. Stay tuned for more content and I'll see you guys in the next one.